The subtitle of my book, Hell to Pay, is How the Suppression of Wages is Destroying America. And it was kind of an inflammatory publisher subtitle, but, but I really believe this. Capitalism is either a good system or it's not. If it's a good system, it cannot also be true that the whole system will come tumbling down if companies are required to pay workers enough. You know, if we don't start paying people more and closing that uh, income and wealth gap, there's going to be hell to pay. Yeah. <laughs> the pitchforks are going to come. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. Today, we get to talk to Michael Lind, who's got a new book out called Hell to Pay, How the Suppression of Wages is Destroying America. And I'm really excited to get to chat with him. Uh, he and I have collaborated in the past. He's been a fellow traveler on a lot of these issues for a long time, a super interesting guy, and he's written um, so many things. I mean, he wrote another book called The New Class War, The Next American Nation and Land of Promise. Um, He's been a thought leader and strategist for, you know, for decades and decades. It'll be really interesting to reconnect. Yeah, obviously a fellow traveler of yours, Nick. You know, the the title of this podcast is Pitchfork Economics, and and that's a nod to uh, your original Pitchforks piece uh, in Politico. The pitchforks are coming. Right. And part of the argument there was... You know, if we don't start paying people more and closing that uh, income and wealth gap, uh, there's going to be hell to pay. Yeah. <laughs> the pitchforks are going to come, and they're going to come for you and your 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 fellow billionaires as uh, well as everybody else. So yeah, I love the first chapter of his book titled "The Big Lie: You Are Paid What You Deserve." <laughs> uh, so so near and dear to our hearts. But with that, let's let's chat with Michael. Well, I'm Michael Lind. Uh, I'm the author of Hell to Pay, How the Suppression of Wages is Destroying America. I have worked for uh, Harper's Magazine, The New Republic, uh, The National Interest, and The New Yorker. And for most of my career, I was at a think tank I co-founded uh, called New America. Uh, I moved back to my hometown of Austin, Texas, to teach at my alma mater, the University of Texas, uh, in 2017, and, and I'm staying in Austin, but at the moment, I'm a freelance writer. You've been thinking and writing about these subjects for a long time. What what made you want to write the book uh, that you just published? Well, Hell to Pay, How the Suppression of Wages is Destroying America, uh, it's about worker power, and it's something that you've been focused on longer than, than I have and many other yeah. people. Uh, I kind of backed into the subject from my major concern, which was industrial policy, because let's assume we get our technology and, and investment policy right, and we grow our traded sector and increase productivity in the non-traded service sector, and, and that we just have more profitable companies and a bigger economy. How would we make sure that those profits are shared with the majority of Americans? Uh, and the simple Econ 101 answer is, 
it's magic. Somehow it just trickles yeah. down, right? <laughs> the, the somewhat more sophisticated neoliberal answer, which I kind of took for granted for many years, I just became very skeptical about it, was that, well, it won't trickle down, but we can have uh, large-scale redistribution from the winners to the so-called losers, a term I obviously yeah. I don't like very much. Uh, and, and it just became clear to me, as I'm sure it was clear to you long before, that there's just no political will. Yeah. Uh, you know, to that sounds good on paper. It just yeah. never happens. You're, you're telling me that the people with wealth and power don't want to redistribute their wealth and power. <laughs> well, it's not only that, it's what in my book, The New Class War, I call the uh, overclass, what, what people, some people call the managerial professional elite. And these these are not you know tycoons you know these are doctors and lawyers and professors and make six figure salaries and to get their vote, uh, Hillary Clinton had to promise that no households over uh, I think it was two hundred thousand would be get any new taxes in a Clinton administration, and then Biden I believe he raised to four hundred thousand per household. Correct. Correct. Uh, so so well, what's the alternative? The alternative, and again, this is been well known, uh, it's, the, it's kind of obvious, is what uh, Jacob Hacker calls pre-distribution. I prefer to right. call it distribution. First, because uh -huh. it, I agree. it is distribution. And second, yeah. people can't hear the difference when you're saying pre and re. So, but, but it's just distribution. You distribute the profits uh, in the form of dividends to shareholders, uh, payment to managers and salaries, and wages to workers. And I know you know this and have written of it. This approach is both more obvious, but it's also way more efficient. <laughs> it is just so much more efficient to pay people adequately rather than impoverishing them at work and then creating this giant bureaucracy designed to fill in the gaps. Well, the scary thing about the giant bureaucracy, even if it's well-intentioned, it creates a sort of surveillance state because you have to right. do two things. You have to make sure these people are really, uh, they honestly are needy, right? You know, they're, yep. they're not millionaires, just sort of bilking the government. But then on top of that, you have to control their behavior. And, and the voters will insist on that, right? You can't yep. spend it all on beer and cigarettes. And this was really impressed on me in the early days of New America, because one of our programs promoted the idea of baby bonds. This was a form of redistribution where you give a certain amount of money to all children at birth, and then it you know grows. And when they're 18, they can use it for various purposes. So we had a, a couple, and these very well-meaning people, we, we had these very well-intentioned nonprofit advocates giving us a talk about their vision of baby bonds. Uh, and when you were 18, you could use the baby bond with all the interest accrued to uh, uh, a down payment on a house or to go to college and various worthy things. As long as uh, you had graduated from high school and had not had a child out of wedlock. Okay. And these were liberals. <laughs> so I thought about, I raised my hand and I said, well, you're realizing that the federal government will have to have files on the sex lives of every teenager yeah. in the United States. And that's just an insoluble problem, uh, Nick, with redistribution, because it is rational for the voters, if you're going to tax them for redistributive purposes, to ask that some constraints be put on how the money is uh, used. Uh, uh, Alma Myrdal, uh, you remember Gunnar and Alma Myrdal, they were the great Swedish social democratic thinkers of the mid 20th uh, century. Alma Myrdal uh, preferred uh, that you have in-kind benefits 
for Swedes in the Swedish welfare state uh, instead of cash, because otherwise, and this was the great left wing thinker, the Swedes would spend it all on alcohol. Yeah. Vodka. <laughs> Uh, a lot of beer too. Yeah, I know. I, in I, fairness, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And herring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but 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 I think this is something we need to stress, Nick. Which is, you could you could do whatever you want with your paycheck. If you want to go spend yeah. it on booze, then spend it on booze. Rich people can spend uh, a lot of money on booze. Well, this came up with the baby bond stuff because. They would put all these. They would limit the purposes for which this form of redistribution could be used. Now, Bruce Ackerman of Yale, who had a Yale Law, who had a similar proposal, he rightly had no restraints on it, and he said, "Well, if if a rich kid can take a year off and go tour Europe, you know, before between high school and college, then why not spend this this stake, as it was called, this baby bond on that?" But the vast majority of advocates said, no, 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 they can only use it for housing. They can only use it for uh, what the taxpayers would believe is worthwhile. Michael, I've really never considered this issue in the way that you just framed it. It is this sort of intractable social problem, isn't it? If you're Sweden or Norway, it's, it's just an order of magnitude simpler, right? You have a much more homogeneous population. It's much smaller. People know everybody, you know. Uh, but in a country as vast, adverse, and complicated as ours, you do end up with this really complicated imposition of standards and judgment on everybody, which bogs everything down and makes everybody crazy and resentful and so on and so forth. It, it's it's super interesting. Don't you agree, Goldie? It's a, it's a super yeah, interesting well, point. Well, I think also, yes, obviously this is, this is an extremely diverse country, deeply racist in many ways in its history. And, but also I think what, what you see, Nick, is the result of uh, 40 years of neoliberalism. Part of the problem here is that if you need the money, by definition, you don't deserve it. <laughs> That's that's true. No, that is true. Because the, the, the market pays yeah. you exactly what you're worth. Right. So right. if you don't have money, you're undeserving. And we have drummed that into people in such a way that it's easy to make that moral leap yeah. that all the recipients so, so, are unworthy. Gully, that's such a good point. But Michael, let's let's back up a little bit. It, why don't you lay out the thesis of your book in, in as short a way as you can? My argument, again, which is not original, but but I think coming from me, it may have some some effect because I'm not seen as, as one of the usual suspects in this area. You know, my argument is that the classical liberals, Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill and Alfred Marshall, all knew that wages are somewhat in, indeterminate. <clears throat> that is, most companies, even small companies, uh, have a fair amount of discretion in the prices they charge. I mean, they can't charge too much. They'll go bankrupt. Uh, but so I, I uh, used to work when I was in high school for my uncle, a grocer, and he would have sales, right? So how do you have sales? You, you jack up your price, and then you say, starting Thursday, I'm going to cut the price, right? So if the market determined the price, that would be impossible. Uh, and the same is true for wages. Uh, and so... This is like the 19th century liberals. This is not some wild left-wing social democratic view. The bargaining power uh, of the employers, the masters, as they were called by Smith, and uh, the workers determined the wage and the, the higher the bargaining power of uh, the workers. Now, they couldn't 
bankrupt the country, the company. But the classical view was that you had to pay your costs, you know, and, and have a profit after that. But the way the profit was distributed among the shareholders and the, the managers later in big firms and the workers was determined by the relative clout of these different groups. And then along came John Bates Clark, yes. great American economist yes. whom you may yes. have heard of. Yeah. There, there's a John Bates Clark medal uh, that Paul Krugman, among others, won for the brightest young economist. And uh, he wrote a book in the 1890s saying, well, no, actually, and I, I was reading, rereading this the other day, wages are set by a natural law. It's actually a natural law. There's no human agency involved. Uh, everybody, uh, the owner, the uh, lenders and investors and the workers get exactly their marginal contribution uh, to the enterprise. And I hadn't realized this when I wrote my book, Hell to Pay, uh, and it, it doesn't affect the argument, but, but Clark's thought experiment was all based on a farm where you had a field and then you just added one worker to till that field. And this was the marginal contribution. And then he worked out how much you would pay for all your hired hands. And being an academic economist, he just thought this simple-minded thought experiment you could apply to a farm field can be applied to all industrial enterprises yes. <laughs> and governments forever, right? Whatever may be the case in the future. But this became the marginal revenue productivity theory of wages, which is still taught in uh, economics classes. But Michael, isn't there is a quote by John Bates Clark somewhere that I read where he went one step further and argued that this way of understanding the economy was very important because it was crucial that workers feel that their wages reflected their contribution. Oh, oh, oh yeah, exactly, exactly. But, but the politics of it was he was a conservative opponent of labor unions yeah. and of socialism and of William Jennings Bryan type populism. And the, the business class of his day of the 1900s and since seized upon this as a way of saying that, well, sorry, workers, there's no point in unionizing. There's no point in having more bargaining power. All you will do, and you read this all the time in the Wall Street Journal and, and yes. Libertarian, if, if you raise, if you get a raise above the natural rate yes. you're supposed to be paid, then you will destroy the business and you will you know, be fired and the American economy will collapse and we'll have yes. World War Three, and mutants will wander. The That's right. Atomic. Cats and dogs living Cats together, and, et cetera, exactly. et cetera. Yes. End <laughs> of times. Harbors, yeah. 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 End of times. Yes. I've got to dig up that quote because it is just extraordinarily revealing. He also said, but of course, this only applies if there's, if we assume no technological progress. Okay. Other than that, right. it works perfectly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the minute you have technological progress, then one firm is increasing its market share based on the new product it's offering rather than on the poverty of its workers. So we can't think about that. That undermines the whole project of discrediting the Samuel Gompers and William Jennings Bryan and Karl Marx. Okay. So given uh, decades and decades of wage suppression... You, you have some strong views about what we should do to heal it. Yeah, and I think there's no one-size-fits-all method. Uh, so I think just as industrial policy, we have to have sector-by-sector sector policy. What you're going to do 
in, well, for example, look at the Teamsters, right, in, in transportation and logistics. The, the proper way of increasing the bargaining power of folks who work in that industry may be different from that of professionals, you know, who are contractors who work for financial firms from home or, or of uh, nursing aides in large hospitals. So uh, again, my book, I'm putting things together. I'm not trying to be terribly original, uh, although I think the combination is original. In large concentrated industries, what you think of as a classic manufacturing and infrastructure industries, it makes sense to have uh, fairly traditional trade unions. What they need, unlike in our present system, and we can talk about this a little bit more in detail if you want, is it needs to, they need to be able to bargain with all employers, multi-employer bargaining in that sector, which I'm sure you agree with, not yeah. just with individual 100%. employers. Now, the, the interesting thing for the 21st century is even in the 1900s, uh, reformers, including the young Winston Churchill, whom I quote in, in uh, the book, who introduced an early version of this kind of legislation, they realized there were some occupations that it was impossible to unionize, mainly because they were dispersed. So if you know, you had one or two workers scattered all over the place, and if they quit, then you know they were just fired. They can't shut down the operations of, of the company. Uh, and most of those workers a hundred years ago were women who did piecework, often uh, sewing. The textile company would drop off the pieces of cloth to their tenements or their homes or whatever, and then they would, you know, they were milliners. They would sew or make hats. And then they would turn it in for, you know, for a fee. Uh, and these were ter terribly poorly paid occupation, long hours. Uh, and so Churchill and these other reformers in the U.S. and also Canada, and I mean, U.K., Canada, U.S., Australia, New Zealand around that time, they came up with wage boards, which are sometimes called worker standards boards, where it's not traditional collective bargaining. What you do is, uh, as you know, you appoint a representative of labor, representative of all of the employers in that industry, maybe a government representative, maybe a consumer representative, and you work out a sector-specific scale of wages, hours, and so on for that occupation only. Uh, and this was kind of uh, forgotten about. There were a few states that had statutes like this from the early 20th century in the U.S., but Andrew Cuomo, as you know, in uh, 2015, dusted off this old wage board uh, statute in uh, New York and used it to push through a, a, a wage increase for fast food workers. And Governor Newsom in California is doing something similar with, with a, they call it a commission. So I think, yeah, and, and finally, in addition to sectoral bargaining and concentrated sectors and wage boards for these decentralized low wage uh, jobs, uh, I think there may be a lot of jobs where neither is particularly appropriate, for example, professional jobs, but you can still bolster the bargaining power of the workers through contract law alone. Because as you know, uh, uh, employers have all kinds of devious things buried in these contracts that workers sign that they don't know about until later. The, the most sinister is the non-compete clause. And this happened to a friend of mine who, who was an H-1B uh, and was working for one of these so-called body shops or labor contractors, which uh, then rented him out to U.S. financial and tech corporations. So they finally grudgingly uh, sponsored his green card so he would have all of the rights of an American worker 
while waiting to get his uh, citizenship, which eventually he did, thank God. Uh, but then when he quit the labor contractor, uh, they sent him a letter saying that, well, you remember you signed this contract saying you can't work for any firm that that we work with or with any similar firm within a 3,000 mile range of New Jersey, including the, <laughs> including the Atlantic Ocean, right? I, I think that goes into Britain and France and Spain a little bit. So he was terribly distraught. And I told him that that is unenforceable in most states. It's called an adhesion contract. Under common law, uh, informal judge-made law in, in most states in the US and Britain, if there's too much inequality of bargaining power, between parties, then the, the written terms can set it aside. So the fact that the judge can just say, we're going to tear up this contract. So uh, I had my friend, he had spent some money to hire a lawyer, you know, send a, uh, send a note to this uh, contractor saying this is unenforceable. So they never tried to enforce it. But it makes you wonder, Nick, mm-hmm. how, how many hundreds or thousands, in this case of these uh, poor H-1Bs, uh, oh, oh, by the way, I left out the most important part. For paying a large sum, they would waive the non-compete clause. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Well, we, we happen to know that one in five American workers are subject to non-competes today. And the Biden administration has published a rule that is in the rulemaking process right now to eliminate non-competes altogether. Uh, but you are right in pointing it out that it is one of the most nefarious clauses in labor today because it and and the and the economic estimates i'm not sure if you've read it are that by eliminating non-competes you're talking about raising wages for workers in the range of 300 billion dollars per year right that's real money it also makes the the labor market a lot more efficient because now you have people moving to the right jobs instead of being stuck in jobs that they're they're not best fit for you you want people to be able to move from job to job that's an efficient labor market. So what else, what else should we be doing? If you look at most of the low-wage jobs in the U.S., they're concentrated in a few sectors, as you know, like retail, uh, leisure and hospitality. We have a lot of very poorly paid but essential medical jobs like nursing aides, very important jobs, elder care, child care. Uh, so I think we ought to have a kind of a triage approach and the first thing we need to do is to really clean up those areas. I mean, I feel for the, the professional engineers uh, and scientists who got screwed over by Google and Apple and so on with these non, no poaching conspiracies that the Justice Department caught uh, these tech firms at. But, but right now, my main focus is on janitors and on uh, uh, yeah. you know, fast food cooks and so on. And there, I think you want to do two things. You want to do the wage boards, and that, that's just, you don't need to do anything different from 1900. You just need every state needs to have these wage boards. You can even do them at the municipal level. And the good thing, so to speak, about these bad jobs is that they cannot be offshore. They cannot be removed. Factory jobs can right. be located anywhere, but they're always going to be janitors. They're going to be you know emergency room nurses and nursing aides. Uh, you're going to have to have them in your town. And if their wages go up, then you may have fewer of them and you may rearrange things and you may you know, invest in automation, but you're not going to get rid of your janitors and your nursing aides in your city, wherever it is. So that put, you know, basically gives the government a bargaining power with these uh, employers because they're not going to just shut up and move to a, a more lenient state. Now, at the same time, 
for political reasons. And also, you know, there are nice, you know, wooden, well-meaning small business employers who would like to pay their workers better, but their profits are too low. My friend uh, Robert D. Atkinson, the economist and, and head of uh, the think tank ITIF and I did a proposal for what we call small business boards, where you would combine wage boards with uh, various other measures, helping small businesses to increase their productivity. Uh, now, ironically, contrary to uh, the antitrust school of Lena Khan and Barry Lynn and, and of uh, Matt Stoller, which gets some things right, uh, but others wrong, uh, our proposal for helping these small businesses would be to relax antitrust rules, uh, to allow them to engage in non-competitive collaboration that it allows them to obtain increasing returns to scale like big firms. So examples of that are they could have common R&D shared with all of the small businesses. They could have common marketing. We have this, uh, and we've had this since the New Deal, by the way, in agriculture. So, so agriculture, uh, if any of you grew up on a farm, is organized on the basis of commodity marketing boards. And they have these wonderful names like the peanut board and the Christmas tree board and things like that. And so you have uh, the Department of Agriculture through these boards does mass marketing. And sometimes they, they do other businesses that the individual small farmer could not afford. Uh, so like milk, 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 like yeah. milk advertising. Exactly. Right? Like milk is good for you. Well, that's not an individual dairy doing that. It It's an association, right? Yeah. So our proposal is that you do yeah, this interesting. with with these small. And so that, that's kind of, there's the stick and the carrot. The stick is uh, we're going to have wage boards. They're going to say what, just like the janitors, the fast food workers, or you know, let's say it could be nursing aides, retail clerks, this, this higher minimum wage in that sector only is going to be phased in in this state. But in the intervening five or 10 years, while we phase in this inflation-adjusted permanent increase, you can get aid. You can belong to this R&D consortium that will help you uh, automate your small business. You can have your products sold by this uh, government brokered trade association marketing board. And you know, so other countries do this. For example, uh, the marketing boards are used routinely by uh, other countries, both uh, developed and developing countries. We had R&D consortiums in the uh, high-tech sector, you may recall, uh, uh, you know, for catching up with Japan with silicon chips, and that was a success. So, so our proposal is, in addition to imposing higher wages and better hours on small businesses, the federal government could help. And this would be in a state-by-state -state basis. It would, it, so it would be a, most – I, I myself – you know, given my druthers, I'm kind of a Hamiltonian. I would rather do everything nationally, but but this is a federal country, and most successful policies, apart from Social Security and Medicare, uh, are hybrid federal and state policies where the federal government funds it, maybe entirely or with matching funds, but the states have some leeway. So we would set up a hybrid federal state program to help small businesses become more productive so that they can pay the higher wages that they're going to have to pay, according to the wage board. But at the same time, their profits will go up, so they're not going to be hurt. Uh, that's a super interesting idea. And, you know, it, it could differ. Obviously, there may be a national association of small businesses that could be helped technically. But, uh, you know, it's, that's a really interesting, it's a really interesting idea. 
one of the themes of hell to pay is that our system now, we've gone from a high wage, low welfare system, by which I mean not that uh, we had a high welfare system in the New Deal, but just that today wages are so low in our low wage, high welfare system that uh, they make up a large amount of the overall income by design of uh, low wage workers. So the low wage worker, even an individual cannot support a family, cannot survive without various means tested uh, uh, subsidies, whether it's cash like the earned income tax credit, housing vouchers. Uh, and and as if, you, if you know these people, uh, it's just a total nightmare because all, they're run by different government programs. They have different eligibility standards. Yeah. They, they have different paperwork. It's just horrible torture to live like this. It's hard work being poor. It is. You have to hire an attorney and an accountant, yeah. right? Just, just to do, just to do the paperwork of, of being poor. So a lot, a lot of these problems, I think, will solve themselves. Uh, now, right. so you wanted to have a residual, compensatory welfare state that's means tested for people who, because of behavioral problems or, or you know illness, disability, et cetera, they, they cannot work. But one of the applause lines I've found that works with all audiences in, in this country, uh, left, right, or center, is if you work 40 hours a week, you should not have to be on means-tested welfare programs of any kind. Yeah, 100%. As I've said it, capitalism is either a good system or it's not. If it's a good system, it cannot also be true that the whole system will come tumbling down if companies are required to pay workers enough to get by without government assisted assistance, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, like, so, so basically, <laughs> what what our system is a pro employer welfare state. Right. It is de it is designed to privatize the benefits of low wages to workers to the employers and also to the consumers of specific goods and services they provide. Uh, and the workers themselves suffer, and the, the real losers are the taxpayers, because the taxpayers end up having to top up the inadequate poverty wages of tens of millions of people. So a couple of final questions. First, our benevolent dictator question. If you were in charge and politics was not a concern, what would you change? What would you do? Well, the first thing I would do as benevolent dictator, and I assure you as dictator, I would not be benevolent. I would be pretty, <laughs> pretty hard, hard line. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think I'd be like that too now. <laughs> but, but first thing I would do is outlaw at-will employment in the United States. Most countries do not have at-will employment. That is, once you're hired, you can only be fired for cause specified in the law. In this country, you cannot be fired uh, at least in theory, because of racial discrimination or sex or gender discrimination or religious discrimination, but you can be fired at a whim otherwise. And so merely getting rid of at-will employment gives workers some security and bargaining power uh, in their jobs. Uh, the, the second thing I would do is expand our social insurance system uh, which gives workers bargaining power, even if they're not unionized. So, for example, if unemployment insurance is more generous and it lasts longer, uh, then you can the workers can hold out longer until employers are forced to raise wages. And this is why Lindsey Graham and other right-wing Republicans want a, an employment insurance and the stimulus to be as brief as possible, right? 
uh, to make workers desperate, you know, for any jobs and any wages. And the same thing has with family policy, parental leave, subsidies to, for child care, whether that can be used for commercial care or public care or by a caregiver at home. All of those increase the bargaining power of what I consider the real unit for society for most people, not for single people, but uh, it's, it's the household, right? And the household can take various forms. But you have many households where you have a full-time worker, a non-worker, two part-time workers, and so on. So, and, and in real life, you know, uh, couples and, and extended families operate as economic units, and you want to strengthen their bargaining power. Uh, and so the final thing I would do as dictator of, of these uh, three things, <laughs> I would mandate. And then now you've noticed I haven't got into the unionization. Right. Because that's a much more complex thing. And you ask me, like, what can be done without elaborate congressional law ruling politics? And I think union reform requires that. It can't be imposed. But what you could impose just by dictatorship is just get rid of the small business exemptions and mandate employer health insurance and maybe a few other things like vacation. That is, this ceases to be private luxuries that maybe unions can bargain for. You still have lots of stuff for unions to do uh, and wage boards. But if you hire one person as a small business, that person has to have health insurance. That person has to have two weeks paid vacation. And I come from a long family of uh, small grocers and ranchers and farmers in Texas. And and I'm my view is that if, if you can't pay a living wage to your workers, then your business should go out of business. You're not a good capitalist. You're not a good, yeah. you need a different business plan. And somebody who can will take your place. Exactly, exactly. And we wrote about this in the shared security piece. What I would do is just eliminate all these bullshit job classifications. Work is work. Full-time, part-time, gig, salaried, W-2, 1099. It's all work and everything should get benefits. Yeah, that that's a brilliant idea. And hell to pay. I talk about this using the phrase of labor arbitrage, but that's a form of labor arbitrage. Mm-hmm. You, you, you do not want employers to be able to pit categories of workers with different rights against each other. One final question. Why do you do this work? <laughs> well, it's less boring uh, than, <laughs> than various other jobs. Uh, but I, I grew up in kind of a political family. My, uh, Aunt was arrested with her, her black friends desegregating, you know, uh, Woolworths, and she later became uh, uh, a co-author with uh, Barbara Jordan on Barbara's uh, uh, great memoir. Uh, and so I come out of kind of a new deal civil rights family, and I was thought, well, I, for my generation, like, what are the, what are the things that we need to do, and the and the fights to be fought, and really now at the age of sixty one, uh, I think that. As I, the subtitle of my book, Hell to Pay, is How the Suppression of Wages is Destroying America. And it was kind of an inflammatory publisher subtitle, but, but I really believe this. I think that so many of our problems, from failed family formation to political polarization and even the lack of friendship and social connection in America today, uh, you can't solve all human ills. You know, that, that's not possible with any political program. But if, you, if people could graduate from high school and make enough money to get married and have kids and own a home if they wanted to and have health insurance, 
then you know it's not going to solve all problems, but this would be a, a better country in in all sorts of areas that you don't think of as normally economic. Fantastic. Well, Michael, it was so great having you on the podcast. Congratulations on the new book and just really fun to reconnect and catch up. Well, thanks. And, and uh, you know, you and your allies and, and Goldie, y'all have been, you know, ahead of this, ahead of everybody else in this area for a long time. So keep up the good work. Great conversation with uh, Micah, but we didn't actually get to the topic of his subtitle, which is how the suppression of wages is destroying America. And to be clear, it you know we've talked about this a lot. Low wages—that's really the heart of the problem here. It is. It is. It is. We used to have a high wage, a higher wage economy, an economy in which uh, wages uh, were growing consistently year over year, one generation to another. That's real wages. And that's how we built the middle class. And it was, you know, as we've said, growth and prosperity is a consequence of a robust and vibrant and growing middle class, not the other way around. And when we moved into this low wage regime, starting sometime in the 1970s, when the focus became on cutting wages, suppressing wages, limiting wages, and we see an echo of that uh, recently with the Federal Reserve's fight against inflation, uh, it was, oh, well, how can we spark a recession so that there isn't so much, we can have unemployment employment again. So there isn't so much pressure on wages. That is what has been hollowing out the middle class and in turn hollowing out the economy. Yeah, absolutely. And hollowing out the democracy, as we've remarked on so, so many times that And, you know, the thing that uh, just the irony of which I just can't get over is that if you stipulate that some people want limited government or small government, well, the best way to do that is to have high wages. (laughs) Uh, Because in a high wage economy where everybody gets paid adequately, you don't have to have these big social programs to make up the difference. And you don't have to have, you know, this giant prison industrial complex to deal with the, the consequences of poverty. It's a classic example of being penny rich and pound foolish. And how locked all sides have been into the the neoliberal mindset that has prevented us from creatively addressing this issue. You know, I was thinking during our conversation uh, when, you know, we were talking about how, you know, our policies uh, essentially subsidize employers. And we know, we come from the left, we're progressive. Uh, we know that the earned income tax credit is one of the most uh, effective anti-poverty programs we have. It lifts people out of poverty, and yet, yeah, it's a subsidy for low-wage low employment. Job. Yeah, it's right. Just, it, yeah, absolutely. You, you couldn't aff- you couldn't pay your workers that little if not for the earned income tax credit, right. Because they wouldn't be able to lead lives that would allow them to do their jobs, and right. so we end up subsidizing employers through the the EITC and through Medicaid and through uh, housing subsidies and through fuel subsidies in the cold parts of the countries uh, so you can heat heat your home through SNAP, you know, yeah. through food stamps. Well, as, as Michael said, we have a pro-employer welfare state. <laughs> right. And so if you if you get past that into a high wage economy, then these supports aren't needed anymore. Right. Absolutely. Uh, and 
And there's not just an economic benefit to that. There's a psychic benefit to that because people don't want these subsidies. Yeah. They, they don't want government subsidies. They want to earn their own living. Uh, it, it's dehumanizing and it's difficult and it's convoluted. And, you know, people are constantly uh, risk falling off, the, uh, off a, a, le- a means testing ledge. And it's an incredibly inefficient way to run the economy as well. So people say, you know, there's this thing, oh, you just can't, throwing money at a problem isn't going to solve it. This isn't a problem you can just throw money at. And, you know, there's a truth to that. But you know what? Throwing money at this problem wouldn't hurt. No, absolutely. Well, won't solve it on its own, but it doesn't hurt. Yeah, absolutely. Well, fascinating conversation. Really interesting guy. It's fun to have him on. And again, the the book is uh, Hell to Pay, How the Suppression of Wages is Destroying America. And you will, of course, find a link to it in our show notes. We urge you to buy it from your local independent bookstore. Or uh, if for convenience sake, you can always get it from that big online monopoly. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.